leader that he is willing to help out in those ways. Uh, my name is Tim. For those of you who have not had the privilege of meeting, um, thank you for coming today, being a part of Christian Life Assembly as we transition our way uh, towards the experience of gathering together again. Although it will probably look and feel different as these weeks unfold to what we were maybe used to a year ago, um, I am confident that the direction we're heading is exactly where God is taking us. And we're on a journey. And like most local churches, or I would say probably all local churches in our city and our country and across the globe, uh, there is a lot to think about. Who agrees? And we want to make sure that the space that we provide in our public gatherings is something that you feel is time well spent. So we have been given permission by many of you to, to dream and to discover some new ways of creating a gathering that has meaning and purpose for you, for your spouse, for your children, your families, extended families, neighbors, co-workers. I know there's some invitation that has taken place, and some of you are here today because of that invitation by a friend. Uh, welcome. Welcome to CLA. Uh, we are in a series called Future Church. Uh, I thought that was a fantastic uh, theme as we, again, pivot towards the church of the future. Looking at things that, as Cody used the word controversial uh, earlier in, when he was up here, uh, some controversial topics for sure. We are, we are not um, apologizing for that. We're also really treading with grace and, and, and wisdom as we unpack these thoughts and these topics week in and week out, figuring that it's time to maybe look at some things that we don't often maybe publicly address from stage, but certainly has so much value when it comes to the culture around us, what people are actually talking about, and Lord, help us to find the courage to, to look at those things with biblical perspective, with eyes to see what Holy Spirit is doing and saying and how he is navigating these very unique days that we're in. So if you've missed that or you're interested, go check out the website, clacalgary.com or our podcast, and there's some very interesting uh, topics that we have discussed so far. Today is no different. Another one that I have been praying over, wrestling through, deciding should it come now? Should it come a week from now? Should I avoid it altogether? Thank you for the giggle. Uh, but we're not going to avoid it. We are going to look at something that I think has a profound impact on people today, especially our millennial generation and our Gen Zs that are coming up. So more simply put, our young adult uh, demographic this is a place that probably now, even in the, the word deconstruction, has a, a stigma attached to it. It's almost cliche because it's been used so much the last five to ten years. But it's, it's reached uh, a level of intensity in the last year that I've never seen in my 40 years of life, or at least in the years that I've cared about these things. Uh, probably for a good two decades or more, there is all over the world men and women 
of the faith, generals in the faith, people of, of mass influence that are deciding and, of course, publicly deciding that they no longer believe in God. Anybody with me? Does anyone know someone that they followed or admired from afar that, is, that has uh, certainly taken on that, that uh, approach or that pivot in life? Uh, I've talked about a few of these figures for the sake of time. We won't go there today. But it is, it is prevalent. It is an epidemic. And the church needs to wake up. Anyone? Um, we, thank you. Before I move on, Hiro and Lynn in the back, can you guys stand up for a second? Brand new baby, eight days old. I did not want to forget. I love you guys. Little baby boy, the family is growing. Um, is, he, is he there or is he sleeping? You can, you can lift up the, this wonderful little car seat here. He is so cute. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm so glad I remember because that's way more important. Uh, love you guys. So excited for you. We're going to bless this baby and introduce you in the weeks to come. Okay. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this moment. As we, we take on a topic that has a lot of weight it's a wrestle to understand uh, doubt and this deconstructing of faith. We are in a season right now that the church, the local church, cannot, cannot ignore this anymore or avoid it or try to explain it in a, in a, in a packaged, proper way. Lord, we have to look at this with, with a lens through your Holy Spirit through the wisdom of God. And we pray for that wisdom today. For every person in this room, Lord, I ask for, for eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. For those that are watching online that will be uh, tuning in later this day or this week. Lord, I come against uh, the, the spirit of distraction or confusion in Jesus' name. Come against those things that would try to even right now just infiltrate our minds to, to, miss, to miss this moment. That each of us would be able to, to, to hear, and not just my words, but more importantly, the words of you, Holy Spirit, speaking to us, softening our hearts, transforming us from the inside out so that we can be alive, fully alive in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Everyone said, amen. John 20 uh, is where we're going this morning. Um, you may have heard of Thomas, doubting Thomas. He's been labeled one of the disciples of Christ. This man was on a very unique journey that so many of us can probably relate to. And I want to read about Thomas, the disciple, today. Uh, his journey was one of... of Believing, then not believing, and then re-believing. Uh, we see that. And we can learn from that, all of us, no matter what your, what your faith uh, has looked like for some, maybe less than a year old, for some 80 or 90 years old. Yes, there's some in this room that are almost 100. I love that. And everything in between all the way to eight days old. So we are covering 
all areas of humanity this morning, even in this room. But a lot of us, many people in our lives, have had doubt. And I believe that there's actually a legitimate space in our soul uh, that God has given us to doubt. I think that it's there for a reason. I don't think it's evil. I don't think it's wrong. I actually think there's something about it that's actually quite profound. What often happens is when we encounter a doubt, we encounter these moments where we question what we think about God, and then all of a sudden we start thinking, do I really love Jesus, or have I ever loved Jesus, or has my relationship with the Lord ever been authentic? I've asked that question, especially in those very dark times where things just aren't making sense no matter what uh, direction I go or who I talk to. It's very relatable. I remember a young man, I had the privilege of leading a young adult community uh, for four and a half years uh, officially, and then probably 15 years, uh, I was in, in immersed in that environment uh, for myself, receiving from that Tehillah environment. And that environment was so profound because it was uh, really a picture of the church, the local church, the body of Christ. There were Baptists, Methodists, there were Catholics, there were Pentecostals, Charismatics, there were Lutherans, there was everyone, Orthodox. It was awesome. So it taught me how to navigate through a dichotomy of theologies and, and, uh, and thought process on how to even, even articulate and not offend. Who knows what I mean? It was a journey. And I remember one young man who came from middle, of, middle Canada, kind of those prairie uh, areas, more small town. And I remember him coming into the Tehillah community in his early 20s, and he was so excited about moving to the big city. Anybody there? Uh, big city transition. Found Tehillah just through whatever avenues back then. Had the privilege of taking him out for coffee. This young man was, was ready to, to, to serve and dive in, and he was going to school here at the U of C, and he wanted to uh, take his experiences with the Lord and do his best to become one who could invest back into his peers. As a church leader, you're, you love those coffees, right? Obviously. And uh, I, I, I care deeply about this young man. And I remember over the course of that first year, his attendance was awesome at the beginning on Monday nights, and he was there, he was present, he was serving, he was invested. And then as the months went on, it started to, uh, to look a little bit different, and I had given him some, some significant time through those first few months to make sure he felt welcome and cared for. And I remember uh, six to eight months to, you know, ten months into his arrival where he was no longer showing up week after week. And a month would go by, five weeks, and I, obviously, you pay attention to these things or you're reminded, and it's, it's that journey of, of relationship with people. I remember reaching out to him one day and saying, let's go for, let's go for coffee. How, how are things? And we sat down. He was still very kind, very respectful, almost apologetic a little bit. But he talked to me about the wild year that he had had. 
in his first year of university. And I remember him saying to me, Pastor Tim, if I'm honest with you, I think, I think I've evolved over this year in my, in my faith. I go, okay. That's, tell me more. Well, I don't, I don't even know really what, what I believe anymore. Even if my faith was authentic prior to this. And certainly not the first time I've had that conversation. And definitely not the last. But God has graced me through these years to, uh, to kind of take those moments and steward them as best as, as I can. But he, there, I, I mean, there's a, f- a dozen stories, times three that I could share with you. But he was, he popped out most important to me because I just remember in his eyes, there was a little bit of resentment that started to, to kind of come out as he felt more comfortable and safe in our conversation. Remember him saying something about how he, start, he was resenting his parents who were voting a certain way and they, they needed to be enlightened. And he was resenting some of the things that he was taught in his small town church because now that he was in the big city and he was a part of, you know, philosophy and, and, and around these great teachers at the university and these new peers that he had met and these atheists that he said, man, these guys are smarter than anyone I've ever met. Anybody can relate to this? Certainly a story that's very, very common. And I remember, even without judgment, he just looked me in the eye and he said, Tim, I, I don't want to end this friendship. Can we, can we spend some more time together? And that is a spot that I wanted just to take us in our hearts today because I know all of us can relate whether it's a son or daughter, whether it's a friend or a, a spouse or somebody that you love dearly that is maybe presently in that exact state of mind. I don't know where you are on your faith journey. And I know that like this young man, he still cared about the teachings of Jesus. He really did. But he was having a really, really tough time believing in some of that core conservative evangelical um, teaching and uh, investment that he was given for those years of his life. I know that sounds familiar to some of us in this room. And there's individuals that you and I care about. It's even some of us in this room that you could say, yeah, Tim, I, I actually relate to that. And... This process is called deconstruction. Some of you know that. Some of you have put a name to it. But it's happening all over the world. Over the course of one year, this young man began to face questions that he had never had to confront during his upbringing. He never had to face this kind of pushback ever in his life, and now it was real. Almost like... The Oregon Trail, you've heard about the Oregon Trail in the U.S. when they discovered more of America to the west. All the way from, I think it was Missouri to Oregon on the coast. 2,200 mile journey. People traveled acro- across America. 
they invested into these new environments and spaces. And so many died of something they call uh, dysentery. Is that right? Yeah. Which caused incredible pain, especially in children, where where contaminated food and water was digested into the body and it caused death. So many. And some scholars and, and, and guys and gals smarter than me, they call this the new kind of Oregon Trail that we're on today. And it's, the, it's not the death of dysentery, but it's the death of deconstruction. It is a new trail, and it's very painful, and it's very hard. And I really, I really related to that as I was reading about this earlier in these weeks. We all react with, with different emotion. In this room even. I do too. I've, I've, I've gone back and forth over these weeks. Some of us would say, well, this is all wrong. It's bad. They can't do that. They're, they're losing heart for the wrong reasons. Others would say on the other side that doubt is, is good. It's important. It's good to take these things that we've been taught and unpack them and make sure that they are truth and that they are right. That's a, that's a good thing. But this morning, I want to invite us almost into what some would call a third way. So it doesn't have to be so much to this side or to this side, but there's a third way. And that way absolutely rejects and crucifies, as some would call, the ideological zealotry that is ripping us apart as the church and as humanity. And actually, say, in the middle of these two insane options that we find ourselves being impacted by, there is a way, and that way is the way of Jesus. Now, that sounds so simple, but the simplicity of Jesus is what's so profound and so impacting. This way is the most liberating. It's the most life-giving, the most true, the most authentic thing that you could ever imagine. But nobody said it wasn't hard. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth people's time to invest in. So Jesus, he was resurrected, those of you who have that faith. We believe that, we read that in scripture. He's now out of the tomb, and on one of those first occasions that he was with his disciples, all of them actually gathered. Everyone was there except, of course, skill testing question. It was Thomas wasn't there, and starts with a J, Judas. So the other guys were all there, but Thomas wasn't there. Thomas, he had heard that Jesus was resurrected, but look at how this unfolds in our chapter today in twenty, John chapter 20 and verse 24. Let's read this together. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples then told him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nails and marks, or nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He used that term a lot after his resurrection. There's probably a lot of fear when this man was showing up in person again. 
And then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Thomas, stop doubting and believe. It's interesting enough here, as I did some research, Orthodox Christians believe that the scars on Jesus are the sign that we will know him in his glory. No other God would be willing to bear scars like that. Love this. That moment in the book of John where he says Jesus will wipe the tears away from his eyes, it's those moments that we will see the scars very closely. The sign of his authenticity is that he is the only God who will be willing to bear the marks of his death. And Thomas sees them in that moment. Isn't that powerful? Thomas then says to him, let's continue, my Lord and my God. Right there, there is a moment where he is now professing the Godhead. He is is believing again in this moment, a, a moment of worship. It's a profound act of worship according to scholars And look at this, Jesus receives his worship because because Jesus was not just a good teacher, but he truly was the son of God, the divine king, the ruler of the universe. So there's this moment of, of revelation and then where Jesus receives from Thomas. Jesus then says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We'll move into that later. I want to identify three things this morning that happened to Thomas uh, that I believe can help all of us. I believe we'll, we'll from here to have some maybe blueprints to understand on how to walk through doubt and deconstruction. More importantly, even is how to serve those around us that are walking through doubt and deconstruction. Now, just a side note here, we're going to pivot in the fall uh, to creating a space just for this on a night during the week. Pastor Cody is going to take his heart and his passion, of course, myself as well and others, but he's going to help lead this charge of creating a space for those that are in this season of life. A place where we can have raw, honest conversation. I'm really excited about this. It'll be in September. Today I felt we needed to have this topic in this series. as almost like a, an introduction into what this all means. But very important, it's not just a one sermon investment. This is going to be a year-long thing, if not more. I really do believe that. So please start praying about who to invite to that. Who you know needs to be in a, in a place very casual, very honest. It's going to be something that I believe the Lord is asking of the local church to go to. And to go over to that place that's really a very courageous thing that we can do. But something that I do believe the Holy Spirit's asking us to do. That's my side note. Think about that. So these movements... It's called the movement of Thomas's path. As I was doing some study, there's a, a man, if you want to read a book about this, fantastic. It's by the, a gentleman in the name of A.J. Swoboda. It's called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. 
It's a newer book, and I believe you will receive much from that or know someone that could. If you need information on that later, just ask me. But there's three things that he identifies. The first one that I want to look at is, is Thomas's journey as he is walking down this path, as we read about. He walks through something called, number one, the theological journey. Secondly, he begins to trust in himself, and then Thomas returns in worship, and we'll go there for these next few minutes. But this first one, the theological journey. Did you notice that Thomas believed in Jesus before? Obviously, that is very clear. Before the doubt came, he was there. He was present. He watched the miracles. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. He saw the eyes, the blind eyes, finding sight. He was present for the moments that we read about all through the Gospels. A part of these things. But in this moment, in, Ch in John chapter 20, we find Thomas in a very different position. His belief had been impacted. He was in a state of doubt. And of course, the story after this is that, again, Thomas believed. He, he found his faith again. He returned to his old faith. But he comes back to that faith in a new way, and that's what we need to look at. There's a diagram up on the screen I want you to, to observe here. You see the word construction, which then leads to deconstruction, which then leads to reconstruction. And at times, it's a cycle. It doesn't just happen once in, in one's life. Everybody in this room is in one of those categories today. I'm very grateful for the church that I grew up in. I was very blessed to have, and am still very blessed to have parents who love the Lord with all their heart. Grandparents who continue to this day to pray for their grandson every single day. I have been given much, and I recognize that. I'm grateful for these seasons where I received so much from a young age. It was the construction of my faith, learning what healing was all about, learning what the understanding of the Trinity, understanding faith, understanding the investment into the things of God, unpacking scripture, learning about things that foundationally transform me from the inside out. In that same sentence, there were incredible things that I learned. But I'd be in denial if I didn't say that there were also things that probably impacted me in a way that weren't so great or not the best. All of us have that story, and that's not a disrespect to those leaders in that season of my life. It's just that there's no perfect place. There's no perfect teaching. We're human, and it's translated through our story and through our experience. And obviously, we do believe that the Holy Spirit can come and revolutionize a moment. But there's still the human nature that gets in the way. So I came out of that chapter of my life with probably some theology and thinking, actually not probably for sure, that I don't agree with today. And that's okay. But as I transitioned into that next season, 
kind of that seminary chapter of my life where I went to study theology. Man, first and foremost, it's amazing the people that want to come and study theology. <laughs> Some of you that have studied theology are laughing because you know. I would look to my left and right and say, why are you here? No. It, <laughs> so judgmental. Um, now, I, I, I say that with a smile on my face, but it's, it's that you go from your local church life growing up in an environment, and then your world really does expand as you head into newer pastures as you get older. We've all been there, all of us. But that was a, 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 a place in my journey that um, I had some epiphanies for sure. Even my, probably the first kind of deconstruction moments in my late teens, early 20s, where I started to realize that the kingdom of God was way bigger than I thought it was. <laughs> Disturbingly bigger. I share that with you because I, I want to be relatable this morning. Eugene, Eugene Peterson says that there are all kinds of diseases that you can get. He talks about this in, in some of his, book, his books. One of the problems um, that he talks about at hospitals is that there are a lot of diseases floating around. And you go there to get healthy, but ironically, sometimes you get sicker when you go there. The medical illness for that is called, um, I'm not even going to try it, iatrogenic, is that right? It's an iatrogenic disease. Diseases define where you, that you pick up at the hospital. They've actually labeled it. The truth of the matter is, every single person in this room and watching online today was handed the gospel of faith in Jesus by an imperfect community. All of us. Some of what I say is certainly imperfect, but we wrestle through it. And when most Christians walk through this stage, it can get very confusing. It's actually happening right around us, as I've talked about week after week, in the political realm and levels that are surrounding us in the countries that we love. If you have been a part of an environment of Christians that supported or backed up something that you believe to be politically detrimental or harmful, and now all of a sudden you realize that you've been a part of it or are a part of it, you are complicit in your mind. Now all of a sudden you're facing these questions. Do I reject that community now or do I, what do I do? What often happens is rather than walking through it with the presence of Jesus, it then turns into faith deconstruction. And then, sadly, so many just walk away. This is a reality for so many. And that's just one example of why. You and I know exactly what it's like to read the Facebook or Instagram, the, the litany that's out there of friends and those that we love that say, I'm done, I no longer believe, I'm sorry to everyone, I just don't think that way anymore. The problem is people that think that when they're having doubt, it means that they don't believe anymore, is actually not true. Did you hear that? The fact is, is that doubt is a sign that you actually have faith. And you're wrestling through it because something is, the dots aren't connecting anymore. 
When you doubt and when you struggle and when you're trying to find out what you believe, that's just actually the sign that there is something deep in you that wants truth. That's actually beautiful. It's not bad at all. Did you hear me, church? This is really important. As a pastor, when I hear someone going through faith struggle, oh, I love to fix, so I want to fix in those moments. Here, here's a YouTube video. Here's, here's an apologist that I love. If you just look, watch him or listen to her, you'll be okay. We know that's not true. But I have to remember that they are not looking, listen, for someone to offer them answers. They are looking for someone to walk with them. They are yearning to be seen, and that's our job, church. They are yearning to be seen. I believe, upon the screen, that the deconstruction and doubt that you're walking through is the Spirit's invitation back into the community. We have to look at it with a bit of a different lens and realize that there is hope on the other side for those that we love and even for your own life. I want to discern something here. There is a, a difference between good deconstruction and bad. The good are the moments in life where we recognize something we believe about Jesus is not Jesus. And then we go, this has to change. I need my theology to transform. That's, that's good. When we see elements in our understanding of God that do not reflect God and we have the guts to say, I'm going to undo that aspect in order to follow God more faithfully. That's good. That's good deconstruction. C.S. Lewis puts it this way about a picture of his wife who had passed away at that point. He was falling more in love with the picture of his wife than the person her, herself, like he started to recognize this moment where it was taking place. And he, quote, he says this, I quote, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. I want joy, not something that is like her. A, a really good photograph might become in the end a snare, a whore, or an obstacle. Images of the holy easily become holy images. Sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It is shattered time after time. He shatters himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. I would take a whole sermon to unpack that one. But C.S. Lewis, I love the wrestle of this man because he makes it real. And he makes... The ability to, to see his journey in faith and still, in the end, fully devoted to Christ. Man, that's something that I can learn from and glean from and certainly receive from. Here's what I'm trying to say, you know, to sum that up. In order for us to follow Jesus faithfully, from time to time, he had to come um, from time to time and shake things up. That's what he did. It's like Isaiah walking into the temple, seeing the Lord in his glory, and his first words that, that came out of his mouth, you know, paraphrase, like, oh, they, like, whoa, I'm a broken man. God, you, your presence is here. Those moments when God reveals something of himself, and we realize that 
we need to be corrected because the way we thought needed adjusting. I believe, to bring some hope into the moment, that heaven, that place of eternity with Christ, will be the great deconstruction when and where we see God face to face. That is the place where we'll recognize all the areas that we thought wrong. And we will be revolutionized from head to toe, in and out, by the pureness of who God is. I cannot wait. There's a book called Church Dogmatics. It's a man uh, by the name of Karl Barth. It's, it's a long one. I, I, you probably won't read it. There's 10 million words in this book. Yeah. He was asked by some, someone or a group, what do you think about this book of 10 million words that you wrote? And he says, in heaven we shall know all that is necessary. And we shall now have to write on paper or, uh, or read more. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even church dogmatics over the growth of which the angels have long amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper. Wow. Even in the presence of God, our theology is shattered. I actually think for a lot of us, deconstruction is our way of faithfully following Jesus. Because we need to ask the big question. It becomes something that we've, that we've been handed uh, is not good, and we need to walk through that. It's okay. This example almost of, of fresh vegetables. Anyone have a garden in this room? You're growing your garden right now? Come on, let me see. There's a few. I, I'll use the tomato for example. A tomato, some people love them, some people don't. But I believe, I actually do believe this, that people don't actually hate tomatoes or hate vegetables. They just hate the fake vegetables that we get in the grocery store. If you actually receive from the garden those big, juicy, red, ripe tomatoes, your mind will change. Maybe not right away, because you've created this idea that they're horrible. But there's something about receiving from the, the purest form. A lot of people are not deconstructing Jesus. They are deconstructing bad religion. Okay? Hopefully the vegetable picture will help you unpack that in your heart. To think about the difference between good and bad destruction, we ha or deconstruction, we have to ask the question, what is the goal? The goal is eternal life, everyone. That's the goal. Everything is about this goal. And if, if you don't have this goal, then there is no way to discern whether or not it is good or bad, healthy or unhealthy. The goal is Jesus. The goal is eternal life. The conversation is not about getting progressives to become more conservative or getting conservatives to become more progressive. Lord knows I've been in the heat of those conversations through the years. This is about getting everyone, all of us, to go deep into Jesus, period. That's what it's about. If that is the goal, then there are clearly some bad forms of deconstruction. I'll say that with confidence because that's not the outcome. Let me define a term for all of you this morning. 
ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism. This is the meaning for this is your culture and your moment in time is the most important and clearly the best. That's, that's how it's defined. Edward Norbeck says this, an excessive centering of ideas and values around those of one's own culture so that the customs of people of different cultures are depreciated and regarded as amusing, ridiculous, inferior, unworthy of serious consideration, immoral, and animal. That's heavy, but that's, that's to me, that's like a heart posture. It might not come out in our words, but what's our heart saying about the other side? How are we going to bed at night thinking about the progressives or about the conservatives? Nobody, nobody is immune from this. Let me explain that just with a little couple of pictures. We all know Thomas Jefferson. He's up on the screen there. A very famous man from the United States. This guy was raised in classic European Enlightenment thinking. I don't know if you knew that. For Thomas Jefferson and the Enlightenment, well, they taught that the supernatural was impossible, that it was dumb, that it was wrong, that it was bad. So they, would call, they called themselves Christians. They claimed to be Christians, but it was defined as a deist Christian. That's the term, which means that you believe in God and that he created the universe, but then after that, he just stepped away, and it was up to us after. That's what a deist Christian believes. This created a problem for him because of all the stories in the Bible that showed and talked about and revealed the miracles of God. So what did he do famously? Some of you know this. He went into his Bible, and he cut out literally all of the miracles, as you can see on the other side. He cut them out. He even cut out the resurrection. thought I'd get a sigh there. He cut out the resurrection. Oh. <laughs> I was still lame. And with his death. <laughs> so with his death, what that's saying is that there's no redemption, right? That's what he was doing as he made that decision. He cut out all the parts that didn't fit into his, what, cultural narrative. Now, we don't necessarily do this physically today, but... We all, in some form, we do this emotionally or exegetically when it comes to Scripture. I'm not immune to this either. We do because we're so influenced by what's around us. Another example, there's something called the Slave Bible. I don't know if you've heard about this. Slave owners loved, back 100, 200 years ago, or more, they loved that their slaves would read the Bible because it would inspire them. And they, 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 they saw the correlation between that. But that they didn't want them to read certain parts. One in particular, probably the most important one, was where God would talk about wanting to allow slaves to go free. That's, that's in the scripture. So what did they do? They got rid of all of that. 
They got rid of the entire book of Exodus. So when they, hand, when they gave these Bibles to these slaves, parts of it were missing. They were failing to recognize that this was not a God who was interested in inspiring people to slavery. This was a God seeking their freedom. To say nothing of the fact that the Bible was actually judging and putting into place the slave owners. What we see in that moment of time is what was needed was not a deconstructed Bible. They needed the whole Bible because the whole Bible gave hope to the slaves and gave hope that God wanted them to go free. It confronted the slave owners and said that you are using your privilege for evil. That is fact. That is history. That is what took place in our world. Slavery didn't end because people stopped reading the Bible. Slavery ended because people finally started reading the Bible. That's what a Catholic priest was quoted saying. I look at the examples and see people passing on a version of the faith that works for them at times. And what I want to say is we aren't called to to love the God that we want, but we are called to love the God who is. And now maybe some of this thought that's about to unfold here sounds a little bit more conservative, but my heart, know my heart, church, that I am on a profound journey myself understanding what this all means and for our church as a whole to be a place where all people can find life in Jesus. And it's going to take a long look, and that's why we're doing this, and that's why we're going there. I've had conversations about sexuality. I unpacked some of this a few weeks ago. If you did not hear that, I encourage you to go listen. And there are times where I'm thinking, I haven't said it often, and I don't, I don't even know much of my heart in these, in these times because it's so vulnerable and it's so real and it's it's something that that carries a lot of weight in our in our world today but there are times when people are un- unpacking this new understanding of sexuality specifically that young adult age group where i'm thinking to myself honestly with with a ton of humility and grace in the moment thinking like are you talking about god here or are you talking about you and what you want it to say. And I've asked myself that same question as I'm wrestling through some of these things as well. God made all of us in his image. But what happens is we're really good at making <laughs> him back about our into our image. And we figure out how to twist that a little bit to make it feel right or better. I don't want to lose anybody. Please stay with me. This is really important. Bad deconstruction is doing away with parts of the Bible that we don't like. Because it doesn't fit our lives. The goal of the disciples is not to bend the Bible around what we think. The goal, excuse me, the goal of a disciple, so all of us, is not to bend the Bible around what we think. And what our culture thinks, it's to bend our culture and our lives around what God has to say. That's the difference. Now, how we do that is so, so important. And 
the, the, the approach has to be so humble and so patient and so grace-filled that we do it in a way where everyone feels welcome and loved and like they can belong. It is a detriment if we're going to have impact. We talk about that theology journey with Thomas. He moves into this place where he starts to trust in himself along that deconstruction journey. I can't believe he's resurrected. What's really happening here is not that he can't believe. It's now that he believes in himself over the community of witnesses that are telling him Jesus is alive. He's starting to hold fast to his own thoughts that are bringing confusion. At the end of the day, every single scientific inquiry, this is a quote by Michael Poloni. He wrote this book called Personal Knowledge about science. He says, at the end of the day, every single scientific inquiry, question and answer, is based on an act of faith. You are believing in your tools. You are believing in the instructions. You are believing that the universe is orderly. Therefore, objective science is based on faith. Love that. So Thomas, he's doubting that Jesus was resurrected, but he's, he's believing himself instead. This is important because we're not talking about faith and reason. We are talking about a, f a faith and alternative faith. We all believe in something, and in this moment in time, Thomas believes in himself more than the truth of the resurrection. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent comes to the woman and he says, did God really say that? Did God really say that you must not eat from that tree? Surely you won't die. He's saying to her, don't trust God, what God has to say. Trust what you think. That's more important. Nothing's changed over these thousands and thousands of years. One of the tricks of the enemy is to offer us things that we already have in Christ. You already, church, have an identity, right? You are loved. You don't need to give away your body to be loved because God loves you. You are loved right here and right now. He says, if I can touch his side, I will believe when a student says to me, I can only believe in a God who, dot, 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 well, that's, that's Thomas's approach in this moment. I believe in God so long as he fits into my cultural narrative, what I think he should be, as long as God fits what I want him to be. That, my friends, at the end of the day is trusting in ourselves more than trusting in God. Now, I can say that with conviction this morning, but it's way easier said than actually lived out. And that's the heart I want you to hear today. And thirdly, Thomas, he returns to worship. He comes to Jesus and he worships him in that last scripture. That's important because we have got to see worship as reflection, opportunity and reality for a person who is in doubt. Worship and doubt can go hand in hand. There's that line in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus goes up the mountain and he says, they came to him, but some doubted. They're, they worshiped with their doubts and they came to worship God with their questions. Thomas came to worship God in his questions. And with that, he found freedom and revelation. That 
even in this, I want you to see as I'm closing that Thomas didn't hear from God for a little bit of time. Jesus didn't actually show up to see Thomas for about a week, a week later. That's a long time when you're in that state. That's important for us to realize because when we are going through doubt, it feels like forever. Who's with me? From time to time, Dallas Willard says, God actually allows us to stew in our doubt because it makes, it makes um, people worthy of truth. His people worthy of truth. When you grow grape seed, I did a little bit of study on this, you never artificially water the plants because all the roots will stay at the surface where the water is. What we need to do is embrace the silence of God and the questions that we have is an opportunity for our roots to go really far down. Jesus waits a week, but then he does show up and he sees him and Thomas worships him with his whole heart. Well, Pastor Tim, isn't, isn't doubt bad? Isn't there those passages that we can read through the New Testament, like in James, where it says the person who doubts is double-minded? Well, sure, that can happen, but the book of Jude also tells us to be merciful to those who are in doubt. And that includes to be merciful to yourself. Meaning it implies that the doubters will always be among us. And when you meet them, you treat them with kindness. You don't treat someone who is doubting as a problem. You see them as a gift from the living God. And that's what Jesus did. What we need is a new generation of guys like C.S. Lewis and Henry Nouwen and go down the list. These generals of the faith who, who were willing to say that the goal in this life is not that we have all the answers. The goal in this life is to worship the living God. To see him face to face as long um, and long or the day when all out theology will come tumbling down by the scars of his hands as he wipes our tears away. We will struggle in this life, yet the goal is so worth it, to know God and to enjoy him forever. That's the goal, church. I finish with this thought about the prodigal son. Carly, you can come on up. The prodigal son was a story that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, a parable that Jesus shares. We've asked these questions. We unpack the dad and the two, and the two sons often. But I kind of looked at this with a different lens these last couple weeks, asking the question why the younger son actually left in the first place. Anybody ever asked that question? Maybe, just maybe, he was sick and tired of his older brother. We know that the older brother was a certain way. We read about that later on in the story. That probably didn't just develop after his brother left and then wanted to, was coming back. That was probably an environment that he, the younger brother, was in for so many years. Maybe he was hurt by somebody else in the family, like his brother. I feel a sense today that 
that God wants to speak to the person who has been deeply wounded by the church. I believe that God wants us all to know that he sees the pain that the older brother has put you through. But God is not willing to let even one not come home. Don't let the silliness and the insecurity and the disconnect of that older brother, figuratively speaking, keep you from the love of the father. Man, the church, the older brother, if obviously I'm connecting there, has been and caused a lot of pain. But we should never let that keep us from the love of the father. Ever. Some of us have grown up in different environments. Also, all of us have grown up in different environments. Some of us, it's been healthy. Others, it's not been. But I remember hearing this story about a young woman who was raised in the church. And there were no boundaries in her home. Uh, what, I, what do I mean by that? Well, there was, it was, it was that, that place of ultra-conservative environment where even, even in her own room, her mom would just barge into her room without ever knocking. She just, she just had no space growing up. And she went off to college and it, she took her first philosophy class and, and that's all it took because at that moment she walked away from her faith. And years later the story is told that she got married and had a child and when that child was at a certain age she realized there was a connection between raising this child in a place of of, of good teaching and, and she found herself making her way back into the church. Not a, a story that hasn't been heard before. She started coming back to church and reading her scriptures again. And one day she was reading Revelations and she came across the scripture where Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And for the first time in her life she got it. That God never, ever, ever in his heart, in his nature, wanted to coerce her to believe in him. God was and will always be inviting. For some, we will only know faith that has been coerced in us. God wants you to know that he doesn't barge in. He will always knock. He then freely invites you to believe. He doesn't force himself in but he waits, and he is so excited to come in, but you and I have to open the door and let him in. That is the nature of the God that we serve. Church, let's stand as I close today. Thank you for the extra few minutes. Lord, I pray this morning that as we transition with our day, that just this very brief introduction into an incredibly complicated provocative confusing controversial topic and a thousand other ways we could describe it but in in all of this lord we just begin to scratch the surface on this this morning, that not one would leave here today 
feeling discouraged or feeling overwhelmed, but that the Spirit of God, that your Spirit would come and just breathe peace into each person, knowing that, that you and your, the posture that you take with all humanity is to, to wait patiently for us. There is a soft and gentle side to you that is waiting for us. You stand at the door and you knock and you're gentle. You let us know that you're there because we need to know that. But you wait for us. And as we find a new understanding or a new revelation of, of your heart for each and every one, that there would be moments, even right now, where there would be a shift. A shift in Jesus' name. <clears throat> where the pain has overwhelmed the good. Where the disappointment has distracted us from the beauty of who you are. Would you bring your grace into this moment and heal hearts, I pray. Would you heal each and every one of us, even where we are blind with, with our thinking or that our way is the right way or that our thoughts or how we see this is what is exactly the way that it is. Would you give us courage to approach things with humility and a place where we can be teachable and learn to, that, that the people that we are loving and that you put into our lives aren't looking for answers. They're just looking for someone to listen and to be present and to walk with. And from that, Lord, the character of Christ will be revealed through our confidence in who you are. That it's not our job, it's your job, Holy Spirit, to bring truth. I thank you for these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church as you go today. Have a great afternoon. Enjoy each other. Enjoy a continued conversation in this area. We will see you again next week. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for the reminder, Dami. If you would like to give this morning, our ushers are in the back or at the table in the lobby there. Thank you for your investments into the house. God bless you.